Today's scripture reading, consistent with the Advent candles, is from the book of Luke, uh, the chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Um, It's printed in page 6 of your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. There's a lot of singing during Christmas, and I don't just mean inside the church, even in the Bible. The stories that we find of the birth of Christ show a number of different people responding to this good news with a song. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at four different places where people erupt into singing as they receive news of the birth of Christ. The Songs of Advent is what this series is going to be called, and we're going to have different pastors from across our Grace Network present expositions or studies on these different songs And today, we're pleased to look at this first song, this first passage uh, from the book of Luke. And we're also pleased, excited, thrilled, all of the above, to have Pastor Mike Park, who is one of the pastors at our Grace Downtown congregation, be our guest preacher uh, this morning. Thank you so much, Brother Mike, for being here. If you have been a part of our church, uh, you are familiar uh, with this dear brother and have received from him his faith, his gifts, his love um, in the past as well. Uh, So, Mike, why don't you come on up and let's welcome him together with applause. Yeah, let me pray for Mike together. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we are so grateful for just the possibilities of an outpouring of your spirit, your grace upon us through your word. And so we pray that you would make good on your promise that your word never departs from you and returns void and empty, but it always accomplishes the very task for which you sent it. And so we pray that you would do that now. We pray that you would use our brother, all of his study, his faith, his gifts, his love, to bring your word to us impactfully, change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. 
I hope uh, you had a good Thanksgiving. And uh, for some of you brave enough to weather the crowd and uh, made your way out to uh, Target or Walmart or wherever else for your Black Friday, congratulations. You have lived another day uh, to tell about your heroic feats. And uh, downtown sends much love, and we are so excited. Every time I come and see what God is doing in this community, I am so encouraged uh, to see what God is doing through you and through Pastor Duke and his efforts to be a church right here in this neighborhood and uh, to bring the gospel hope to the people right here. And uh, I see that in concrete ways, and uh, I'm always thankful for that. Um, will you join me? We're going to pray one more time, and then we'll, we'll dive into the Word, because I could always use extra prayer. So can all of us, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. And we know that your kingdom is not of words, but of power. And we come now and yield our hearts before you and ask that you would shape it so that as we engage our hearts with your word, that it would ultimately transform us and our endeavors so that it would bring glory to your kingdom. Speak now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The songs that resonate deep in our hearts and connect with our soul are born from deep recesses of pain, struggle, and love. And they sort of function as this grand narrative that brings all of us together. And perhaps you've heard of the song, Hello by Adele. And uh, if you haven't, I don't know what cave you've been living in, uh, because I, my two-year-old Daniel has been running around the house singing hello. Uh, I thought he was getting really good at greeting people. I thought, oh, education is paying off. But apparently, my wife has been indoctrinating him in the car uh, as she's been blasting Adele everywhere. She's... My wife does not buy CDs, but she actually purchased one. So I know uh, she's, trying to, she's trying to do something to my kids. <laughs> And I have to confess, I, I'm a Fairweather fan. Um, I love music. Um, I grew up playing the guitar, so I love music. But Adele, you know, a, she's all right. Um, maybe for you, you know, she's your thing. For me, she's not. But uh, I have to admit, though, that those two songs, Someone Like You and Hello, I mean, they're heavyweights. You know, they go deep into your heart. And, and she exposes things. Does she not? Is it just me? Is it just me? Okay, maybe it's just me, but I, I think she exposes all my past hurts and disappointments. I'm like, man, I, I need to make peace with my past. So I did some research after hearing the song, Hello. I'm like, this has got to be more than just going back and trying to make amends with your past boyfriend. And I discovered something about this song, that it's really not about her and her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, but it's really about her rediscovering herself her younger self. She writes, I feel like I've spent my whole life so far wishing it away, wishing I was older, wishing I was somewhere else, wishing I could remember and wishing I could forget too, wishing I hadn't ruined so many good things because I was scared or bored. Now at 25, she was 25 when she wrote these songs. 25. Some of you are like, what's wrong with 25, right? Just I don't know, man. 25 seems really young, but 
I make, she says, now at 25, I'm making up with myself, making up for lost time, making up for everything I ever did and never did, but I haven't got time to hold on to the crumbs of my past like I used to. Now, on the edge of being an old adolescent and a fully-fledged adult, I made a decision to go on into becoming who I'm going to be forever without removal van full of my old junk. So in the opening lines, when she greets that somebody and says, it's me, I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet, to go over everything. She is singing to her younger self. Now, I'm sure many of us could understand and sympathize with this very sentiment to make peace and to come to terms with our past, to carry forward the lessons learned while leaving behind the garbage that we've somehow outgrown is a common struggle to many of us. As I said, after reading that, I felt like going back to my old yearbook and just looking through my younger years and sort of wishing and longing for the days when things were a little carefree, easier. Now, when you understand the story, the story behind the song, the song transcends the mechanics and evolves into a universal language that captures all of our hearts. And the same could be said of the angel song that we read earlier. Without the backstory, the song itself becomes just empty words, perhaps a cool tune to sing to, but nothing more than that. And it's the story of God's redemption that really captures our hearts and it moves us to join this great choir in singing this song to God. So this morning, we'll look at two things. First, we'll look at the story beneath the song. And lastly, we'll look at the song itself. So let's go to the story. The angel appears through the shepherds with an announcement that would change not only their life, but really the course of history itself. Starting with verse 10, it says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And what I want to do here in our first point is to sort of dissect this passage and look at various words and phrases and go deep into what this announcement is about. So let's begin with the phrase, fear not. Fear not. These words go beyond their intended purpose. Immediately, they address the shepherds who are probably on their face, fearing for their very life because of this great light that had shown. I mean, if you encounter an angel, we read this and we sort of move quickly through them, but if you encounter an angel, I'm sure you would have a similar reaction. So for their words, fear not, addresses them immediately, but ultimately they address the human condition, <clears throat> excuse me, ever since the fall. The first time this word fear enters human lexicon is back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden after sin. The passage says, Adam and Eve hid because they were afraid 
of God. They hid because they were afraid of God. You see, fear is a byproduct of an estranged relationship with God where now Adam and Eve perceive God as a threat. And that fear festers and runs into pretty much everything that we engage in. That's why so many of us, we fear people and their approval. We fear the future and the uncertainty that it brings. And all of us, we fear death. And if the source of fear is a disjointed relationship with God, then the solution is a restored relationship with God. In 1 John 4, verse 18, Apostle John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What is he saying? He's saying that our fear of other things is reflective ultimately of our fear of God and his judgment. But it's God's perfect love that quiets our fear. You see, reconciliation begins then with an outside word spoken over us. There is no hope in ourselves. We cannot work hard or we cannot be religious enough to solve the human problem of sin and death. We need an outside word, and that word is incarnation. God became one of us to dwell among us, to convey his love for us so that we would know that we have a hope outside of ourselves. You see, incarnation is God's final word that says, I love you, and it's his way of reaching out to us to befriend us even at great cost to himself so that he may lead us out from the shadows into his glorious light, not only to experience the hope of eternal life to come, but to live in that hope right now, here, as we await the second advent of Christ. And this good news, the angel says, is for all people, for all people. In verse 10, the angel appearing to the shepherds is symbolic in that this good news is not just for the elites, but it's for all people. You see, the shepherds were marginalized from their society. They weren't royalty like King Herod. They weren't religious leaders like the Pharisees. They weren't scholars like the Magi from the East. They were common folk at best. In fact, we find them in the text working the midnight shift. Yet the message was addressed to them personally. It wasn't this mass email that was sent to everybody, but a handwritten note that was given to them. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be assigned to you, and you will find. You know, handwritten notes, they say a lot, especially these days, don't they? You know, we get emails, invites to parties and whatnot. But you know, I have to confess as a father, when my children bring home these nicely decorated, handwritten cards from their two-year-old peers, right, inviting them to their birthday parties, I'm like, we're missing out on something. The picture, it's, it's Picasso at best, right? You don't know what it's about. It's a line, 
square, a circle, and their name that you can barely make out. But it says a lot about that friendship, that they're valued, that they actually take in the time and the effort to think about you and to write this card or even to draw it or sketch it, whatever, to invite you because you are special to them. This is exactly what the angels did to the shepherds who were on the margins. You see, the gospel esteems every individual as an image bearer of God, regardless of one's degree, one's resume, or even paycheck. See, before we are our work, our education, we are people made in the image of God. And the gospel addresses that, and it celebrates that. You see, the gospel frees us from living by the script of this world. So many people, perhaps some of you this morning, without knowing, bow before the idols of this city, trying to grasp the very things God has already given to you in Christ. We want recognition. And the Bible says he knows us completely and fully. We want security. And the Bible says he loves us unconditionally. We want approval. And the Old Testament prophet says that our God actually sings and dances while rejoicing over us. I think as we think about Advent and what it means not only for us, but as a community, called to bear that light and witness in this community, it's got to start right here. I hope you allow the gospel message to go deep into your heart, that you would see glimpses of our Father rejoicing over us with singing and dancing. And that image of his delight will minister to you in a way that you can go confidently and courageously into this city with all of its brokenness and with an open hand give yourself not only to those who, can, who we can benefit from, but even those on the margins that the city ignores. Because that's what the gospel has done for us, you see. We dare not think that we somehow deserve God's favor, that he came to us because we earn something. But we, much like the shepherds, were in dire need of his grace. And he came to us. Now, who is this baby that's lying in a manger? The angel said this baby is a savior who is the Christ the Lord. And these titles have rich Old Testament references. And each of them really could be a sermon of their own. But I will spare you from that. Um, The title Savior echoes the story of Exodus, where God saved his people from their bondage in Egypt. And the title, Christ the Lord, refers to Christ as the heir to David's throne who will reign forever. In other words, this baby is a savior king who has come to make good on his promise to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and death. That's who this child, this baby is. And to confirm it, the angel gave them a sign, a sign. 
Now, we, we know the, the various functions of a sign, one of which is to identify something as what you're looking for. The other day, for the first time, I uh, tried Dukum. Hey, you guys know this place, Dukum? It's, it's a fantastic place. And uh, I met one of my uh, friends there, and, uh, you know, it was my first time, so I'm faithfully and diligently following my GPS, and it's taking me all over U Street, and I was so confused. I, I don't go there a whole lot. But uh, I finally got there, uh, and I knew I did because the sign said Dukum, right? It said Dukum. And it sort of distinguishes all other restaurants, right, from it because the sign. And, and basically, that's what the sign did. The angel gave them a sign that said, this is how you know, you'll know, that child is the child I'm talking about that he will be wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. And this is a head-scratcher, isn't it? I have four kids, and I remember being in the delivery room for every one of them. How precious they were, and how carefully I was trying to hold them, and, and, and care for them, and love on them. And, and I cannot imagine taking a newborn and putting it in a manger, Yet that's where this baby is found. And all of a sudden, if you imagine, okay, read between the lines and, and put yourself, insert yourself in the story as one of the shepherds hearing this great announcement, and this is where the story takes a quick left turn because you're thinking, wait a minute, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior King who's going to come and defeat sin and death has come in a form of a baby. Okay, I get that. But he's lying where? Shouldn't he be in a palace? Celebrated with heads of state, with foreign dignitaries, showering him with love and gifts of all sorts. Yet there he is, in a manger. And the two ironic bookends to the life of Christ, the manger and the cross, say a lot about Christ and his humility. Mark 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He took the low place. He humbled himself again and again and again until he couldn't go any lower, and there he gave himself completely us. And this is what we celebrate as we look back to the first advent of Christ. That our King, our Savior, our God would come in such a humble manner to say to us from the very beginning, I come to serve. So when he wraps a towel around his waist, even on the night before he would be crucified, to perform the lowest task reserved for a Gentile slave. We get it. And we say, this is our God. That he would reach out to us and wrap a towel around his waist to get on his knees, to serve us in a way that baffles our categories 
that he doesn't simply trumpet the gospel from the heavens, but he comes low. And so when he goes to the cross, we say, yes, this is our God, that he would humble himself in such a way to give all of himself. Behold our servant, our king, our God. You see, this really is what we celebrate in this Advent season. As we look back and remember our servant king, who in the meantime is preparing all things for us. Even now, seated, he reigns. And I think we need to see a vision of that as we're bombarded by the headlines of all the brokenness and mess in this world, that he is still on the throne. He reigns. And he intercedes on our behalf. Talk about editing prayers. I offer up my prayer and says, well, God, he really meant. And he's, he is tirelessly working on our behalf. And this really is a story beneath the song. So let's get now to the song and see what this song means for us today. Verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This song really is a commentary of what will result from Jesus' death. What results from his birth is the restoration of creational design. As Westminster, some of you may be familiar with, says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, the Old Testament word shalom, peace, that's used here, refers to the reality of living in the fullness of God's favor. Let me read you a definition written uh, by a Christian author, Cornelius Platinka, and he defines shalom this way. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. And this is what Shalom is all about, he says. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonders as, it, as its creator and savior opens the doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. I love that last line. Shalom, this peace, is the way things ought to be. And we are then, as God's people who have been touched and transformed this story to live out these very lyrics in the stage of our individual life. So what does it mean practically? It means worship must be a priority. Worship must be our priority. You see, worship in a narrow sense is what we do here on Sunday. And it's good. We need that. It's a deep interchange between us and God. 
to be renewed, strengthened, so that as we exit these doors with God's good word, that we are then ready to engage this community, our work, our families, our friends with the gospel. We need this. It's important. But worship in the broad sense is what we do in between Sundays. So what happens in church does not stay in church. Rather, we ought to advocate out there to be the voice, to be actors, not just props showing up at work and community, but actors living out this story so that those watching us would see a glimpse of this song. And in order for that to happen, worship has to be a priority. And how do we do that practically? Well, worship has to be the orientation of our heart. That's where it begins. It's not something we do, but it's who we are. It's born out of our heart. As we understand the gospel and who Jesus is and all that he has done for us, worship is responding to that by giving all of ourselves. And it's not just a one-time thing, but daily and constantly we exercise faith by saying, God, I want to worship you in light of who you are and what you have done. And so as we go into our workplace, we work and we do our best in light of the gospel. As we engage family and friends, we don't simply give them leftover time, but we give them focused attention, even at great cost to ourselves. To really ask the question, how are you doing, right? And at the same time, be prepared to pause and to listen and to be present there. Even if it means your personal time is compromised. That's what worship is. And that we make room in our busy schedules to serve this community. You got a lot of things coming your way, as you saw in the announcements. Many tangible ways for you to be right here in this community to say, this is what Christmas season is all about. And I hope you'll jump on that and take advantage of this privilege to again declare his glory through your life. And we do this regardless of how we feel. Sometimes I think we put too much stock in our emotions and we think, well, I don't feel like worshiping. And we give ourselves a free pass. We don't treat anyone else like that. I'm going to love my spouse when I feel like loving him or her. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to love my children when I feel like loving. No, it doesn't work that way. But so often we feel like we could do that with God. I don't feel like it. After all, if I don't feel like worshiping God and show up to church, isn't that being hypocritical? I would say, no, that's being obedient. That's being obedient. Just imagine a world where everyone acted upon the impulses of our emotion. Driving in a city like this, I, I want to run over many cars. <laughs> Bump a lot of bikes. Sorry if you're a biker here. Like, come on, just get on the sidewalk. It's okay here in Northwest Wyoming. You could actually go. Anyway, we, we don't do that. Somehow we feel that it's okay. 
appropriate with God. And how about this one? Well, it's not the right season in life. It's not the right season in life. Can you imagine the scene? I love, I love to read the Bible imaginatively because I think it flushes out things. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for it in heaven or not, but, you know, Jesus calling his disciples. Can you imagine? You know, he's this up-and-coming preacher, rabbi. He's performing some cool things, like he turned water to wine. That's cool, right? And he goes to these men who have full-time jobs, right? And he says, Put it all down. Put it all away. Come follow me. Can you imagine Peter saying, well, it's just not the right season in life, Jesus. You see, it's fishing season. And what we do in the next few weeks here can make all the financial difference for my family. So just give me a couple of weeks, and I just got to clean things up and fold them and put them away. And that, can you imagine if the Bible read like that? Look, let me just say, that someday may never come. You say, one of these days, someday, way out there, I'll have time for important things. But for now, I got to do what I got to do. You say, look, that someday may never come. Today is that someday. And you and I are called to worship. To hit the pause button in this rat race called Washington. And to say, God, this is more important. You are more important. And the calling to love you and love others, that's more important. How radical, just how radical would that be for us as a community? to embrace something that is so anti-Washington and to say, I'm not going to give in to what this city considers to be important. I'm going to center my life, orient my life on God's word. I think that will say so much more to our community, to this city. And a project that we do once a month. And as we learn to worship like this and make it a priority, it transforms us. You see, worship is transformative. It shapes our vision. So our vision is no longer about getting that corner office or moving up, meeting the right people, getting married and having kids, whatever your vision may be. But vision really becomes Christ and his kingdom to come. And we sense a great longing for that. Again, that's what this Advent season is all about. This worship service, the word, but even something like this, the candle reminding us that our hope is not here, but we await the hope to come. And it shapes our vision and it provides all the motivation we need to be humble servants in this community, to be a faithful presence in this community even at great cost to ourselves. And when this story is made visible in our life, the world will witness and they will hear afresh the angel song. Glory to God in the highest and peace 
to men. I get it. I get that. There's reason to celebrate, and I see it in this community. Many of you know and have heard about the Christmas truths back in 1914, where roughly 100,000 British and German troops took time from war to celebrate Christmas. And they did it by lighting candles, singing carols, exchanging greetings, and gifts like buttons and other souvenirs. And for a while, in some places, as long as a week or so, there was peace. Enemies became friends. Hostility gave way to kindness. And chaos of death, at least for a while, gave way to the sacredness of that day that ultimately looked back to the gift of life that we have in Christ. And I thought, this is the calling of the church. It feels like we are caught between two enemy lines sometimes. And as we're trying to live out our faith and to hold before this world the gospel, we find ourselves often defeated and discouraged. But it's the only message where enemies can become friends. True reconciliation between people can happen. And can I just say, I love what's going on here. Even this very view of you all, this mixed group, old, young, men, women, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, this is beautiful. And I think this group here, the watching world, says a lot about the gospel and the true reconciliation that it brings to us. This is the only message, the only story, only hope that this world has, really. And our calling, therefore, is to keep on singing these lyrics. as we take the humble place to love and serve. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ, who on this Christmas season gave all of himself. Not only then, but even now, Lord, you're here to give all of yourself to us. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that you never stop giving. And you lavish us with yourself and with many good gifts again and again, whether we come with open hands, open hearts or not. And for that, we give you thanks. And our prayer this morning is that our hearts will be so moved by that story that we would declare with our lives your mercy, your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.